0: you're listening to a sermon from Grace Church located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. Well, today we begin a new series. By the way, my name is Craig, so if we've not met before, uh, I hope to meet you after the service. My, um, it's wonderful to have you here as a guest, as a new person. We're starting a new series today, and uh, it's going to be in the book of 1 Peter. We're calling it Thriving on the Margins God's Purpose for His Church in an Increasingly Hostile World. Thriving on the Margins. It's a theme we're going to talk about a lot in the next number of weeks. And um, so we look forward to that. On the way in, hopefully you received a, a journal of 1 Peter, the book we're gonna be going through. So you can take this. I'd encourage you to bring it each Sunday. I encourage you to take notes. We've done this with books before we've gone through. You could take notes on a Sunday. Uh, you can read ahead, write down, pray about it, write down your, your thoughts and um, you know, use it. You can mark it up, you can circle repeated words and draw lines how this verse connects to that verse or whatever it might be. Uh, so it can really be a tool for you to mark up and use and use it as a real study tool As we go through it together, we also out on the bookshelf across from the coffee area, the cafe, we also have a couple of books available uh, for you um, that that you could buy that will go through this. So the first one is a commentary and it is uh, by Juan Sanchez. It's called 1 Peter for You. So this would be a good commentary if you want a little extra study. It's, it's understandable. Uh, it's not uh, written at a high scholarly level or something like that. Uh, it is very accessible, and I think it would serve you well. So that's available out there. Also a book called Evangelism as Exiles, Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land. Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land. This is a book that talks about First Peter somewhat. It's written by someone who was uh, Elliot Clark, who uh, shares his experience as a, as a missionary uh, in the Middle East and then coming back to the U.S. and his experience here. Uh, so it's, it's very engaging. Uh, but it's a book that really teaches us uh, how can we be witnesses, how can we be fruitful witnesses when times uh, grow difficult and darker. What is, how does the light shine? How are we to provide a compelling testimony to a watching world? And how do we do that as individuals as well? So this will be a book that will really stir you and uh, help you as well, I believe. Well, whatever line of work you are in, you probably receive emails Uh, from folks who have solutions for your vocational problems. They're usually pitching a seminar, uh, or nowadays it would be a webinar uh, that you don't even have to leave your seat to attend, or they're they're pitching something that will help you. They're offering coaching, or perhaps they have some new tool uh, for you to use that will make you better at your job, or or maybe they're offering a new software uh, that will solve all of your problems. Well, I receive emails like this, and and have for years. Um, but in the past couple years, the emails have changed dramatically they've changed. It used to be I would get emails that would say, hey, you know, here's a book or a resource or a seminar on how you can achieve work-life balance or uh, in my line of work, how you can preach a better sermon or something like that. But over the last two years, the emails I have received have been more along the lines of how you can survive. And specifically, how can you survive uh, in the emails I receive, how can you survive as a pastor in a church in a world that is changing so rapidly? How can you survive? So a couple of weeks ago, I received this email from a reputable source, but this is what it wrote. Uh, in the middle, it's, you know, dear pastor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it was a, a you know, a, a group email sent out to all kinds of uh, people. And it said, The future of the church in the West has never been more uncertain. The combination of rapid secularization, tectonic shifts around gender and sexuality, and the politicization of nearly everything in society have emptied churches around the country. Most of the churches we work with report that attendance has shrunk by 40% relative to pre-pandemic numbers. Some pastors still pine pine away for the old glory days and others have been so demoralized by the changes that they have quit ministry altogether with a link to an article saying 40% of pastors are on the verge of quitting, whatever. Um, Regardless of where you are, or your church falls or where your church falls on the spectrums, there is no question that this is the most complex time to be a pastor in perhaps all of church history. That's a bold statement. Pastors have to navigate online services, local and state, COVID regulations, political partisanship, complicated questions around sexual and gender ethics, ongoing racial angst. And all of this on top of the normal challenges that churches have faced for decades. People didn't stop gossiping, lying, cheating on their spouses, and needing discipleship. These challenges have simply been layered on top of an already demanding job. Yeah, if y'all would stop lying and cheating and gossiping, I could get to the 30,000-foot-level stuff about sexual ethics and racial angst, I guess. I don't know. But that's what it sounds like it is saying. He says, it reminds me of the Jim Gaffigan joke about having four kids. Just imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. These last few years have been tough, to say the least, but the future doesn't look any easier. Kind of foreboding email, wasn't it? I don't know that we live in unprecedented times. If you read history and different points, you kind of go, yeah. We certainly don't live in the most difficult times for sure uh, in this country. People have endured far more. But whether we live in unprecedented times or not, I think he's right about this. That America has experienced rapid secularization we have experienced tectonic shifts as he wrote around gender and sexuality and polarizing politicization of nearly everything that is true he is right and the reality is that as culture has moved the church has been displaced from where it was certainly a generation ago as a as a place of the center of influence in the culture and we have been moved progressively to the margins and it appears that that is only increasing with some rapidness. Our cultural voice, the church's cultural voice in America has declined dramatically and even here in the Bible Belt we are needing to learn how to navigate life in a new reality, what people call the post-Christian world that we live in. Many Christians, I would say most, at least what I hear in the broad evangelical world, many are fearful. Some are loud and angry, but even even the root of that anger, I wonder if it's not fear. If it's not a fear-based anger. Fear of losing our religious liberties. Fear of increased opposition. Fear of persecution in its various forms. And because of this climate, 1 Peter is the perfect book in the New Testament to address our world and our season, especially in the American, the American church. Because Peter is addressing Christians on the margins, now, their situation is different than ours in the first century, but they are not at this point being arrested, uh, at least not on a broad scale. They're not being arrested and martyred for their faith. That comes later after the book of First Peter is written. They are experiencing a more localized rejection, we might say. In today's terms, these Christians are being canceled. They're being excluded They're being slandered and lied about. They're being harassed. They're being mocked for their faith. Some are perhaps losing their jobs because of their commitment to Christ. Some may be losing their spouses because of their commitment to Christ. Some may be actually losing possessions and that sort of thing, all of them are being pressured to embrace the views and the practices and the lifestyles of the surrounding culture that they find themselves in. And into this situation, which Peter refers to as a fiery trial, uh, which he refers to as suffering, into that Peter gives a vision for how glorious life on the margins can really be. And his playbook is very, very different from the American evangelical playbook of what you're supposed to do when you're on the margins. I I want you to read this letter. Read it over. You've got it in your journal. Read it over and see how different it is from the voices that you hear in our culture Saying how we should be responding, how we should be, what should consume us as evangelical Christians. For instance, he doesn't spend any time complaining about the Roman government. Actually, he's gonna say, honor the emperor, who is Nero. He doesn't spend any time worrying about the Roman government, he doesn't spend any time critiquing the culture. And, uh, and, and just sort of talking, grumbling, grumbling about how evil and deceptive the culture is. Rather, he tells the church to wake up and live out your identity. He reminds them that they are loved by God, that they are God's special people in the world. And he calls them to holy, living, characterized by love of neighbor we're often criticizing the unholy world peter is concerned about the unholy church he's going to say judgment begins in the house of the lord he read the letter he's not going to busy himself going on and on and getting so stressed out about the fact the world is going to hell in a handbasket as they used to say he doesn't that's not his, his grief his major concern in this letter. His concern is the church be an alternative society pointing to Christ, not grumbling about the surrounding culture, but looking to Jesus and following him with repentance and love and holiness. And in 1 Peter, we learn how to live on mission in an increasingly resistant world and his aim, and his plan, and his map. Well, for some of us, it's going to be different than what we expected. He's not calling for a culture war. He's calling for a gospel revolution that changes people so that from the margins, we have something to offer that is compelling to a lost and dying world. Well, we're going to start with reading just the first two verses today uh, as an introduction to the book. So 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, he starts out it's, it's uh, he starts out with a from and a to. The letter is from verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, uh, Peter rather, is one of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, He plays a key role in the early church, he preaches the first sermon on the day of Pentecost when the church really comes together and is, is in a sense, birthed. Uh, He is the leader of the Jerusalem church and he's sort of known as the apostle to the Jews, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the areas that he mentions that this letter is written to were probably evangelized by Paul in the 50s, and then Peter comes and writes this letter to them in the 60s. If you're new to the Bible, that's not the 1960s, but like the 60s, <laughs> the, the 60s, the 0060s, zero, zero okay, uh, 60 years Uh, uh, after, uh, you know, uh, after we start at zero, right? So there you go. And who is he writing to? Well, he says he's writing to the elect exiles. This could not be a more important phrase. The elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So I have a map for you to show you where this is. Uh, And can you see that little dot there? So up at the right... On the top right, we have the Black Sea, and this is the area he talked about. That he just wrote about: Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, and Asia. So this area up here, all this entire area, was now modern Turkey. It's a land about the size of New Mexico. Anybody from New Mexico here? Your state is the fifth largest state in the country by landmass. So that's about the size, mileage, you know, square miles. It's about the size. of New Mexico. And you can see cities over here that you're familiar with that Paul evangelized. Here's Ephesus, Colossae. Uh, You may have remembered in the book of Acts, he was in Iconium and Troas. Here's Philippi up here. So here you have all these places that Paul had evangelized. And now, this group up here, Peter, is writing a letter to these folks. These kind of coastal cities are probably a, a little bit more populated, like Ephesus and Colossae, a little bit more populated, a little bit more educated. Not as true up here. There's probably a little bit more, a little bit more formal persecution going on here. It's a little bit more sort of random, as I described, happening in the area where he is writing, and. This leads us to the message of the book, it's from Peter, it's to these people in these areas and the message is seen in the phrase, to the elect exiles. Because here's what we're going to find in the letter, that his message for the church is found in their identity. Really he's wanting to define in this first phrase who they are, how they understand themselves in two important ways how they understand themselves in relation to God and how they understand themselves in relation to the world. And so here he's giving them this sort of identity that we want to flesh out a little bit this morning and understand and and ultimately refer to in the coming weeks. So first of all, he says they are elect exiles. I'm going to start with exiles. He says they are exiles. The word can be translated in various ways. Sometimes it's translated foreigners. Um, Sometimes it's translated aliens. So, for instance, the NASB translates this, to those who reside as aliens. So here's the big idea of the word exile and what it means. It describes someone who is not a citizen of the place they live. They are a foreigner, someone who doesn't enjoy the rights and privileges of citizenship where they live. And and more than that, as the letter will show, someone who's viewed suspiciously for not embracing the customs or the values, the religion even, of the surrounding society. It's a word that we find in the Old Testament. It has has Old Testament significance because the the time of exile was the time when Israel was invaded and taken away to the land of Babylon. Babylon where they lived as exiles. They were plopped down in a foreign land, and they were surrounded by foreign idolatries, foreign language, foreign uh, customs of all kind. So the exiles, when God's people were in exile, it meant that they lived in someone else's land. This is the key idea. They lived in someone else's land. They weren't at home. Not only that, but the passage says that you are elect exiles of the dispersion. The word dispersion speaks of the scattering of the Jews. Sometimes you see it called the diaspora. It is is the scattering of the people of God outside their homeland. So that's what he's saying as well here, that you are outside, you are away from your home. Now, Peter's writing to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and so the language he's using here is metaphorical. They are not actual exiles. So the people in those areas up there that I showed on the map, they're not from another country, and because of war or because of some difficulty, they've now relocated to a foreign land. They're not refugees, in other words. This is their land. Rather, what he's saying is, as exiles, you are foreigners in your own land. You are outsiders in your homeland. That is the idea that he is giving. He, they are spiritual exiles. They are spiritual, spiritual foreigners. The world is not their home. They belong to a different kingdom. And so they're living outside their true home, and they're living in what feels like a cultural, spiritual, foreign land. This comes clear in chapter 2. Look at his language in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's who you are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the contrast that he is making there? He's saying, You're sojourners, that means you're passing through. You're exiles, that means you're not at home. You are outsiders in a foreign land. So don't sin, don't embrace the passions of the flesh. Which is characteristic of the Gentiles around you, but keep your conduct honorable before them, he says. So he's saying, You're in this, you're like this island of people in a foreign land. So don't embrace the passions of the Gentiles, but ensure that your life is different so that your conduct stands out so they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You have a mission and a purpose that you would be a representative of me to the nations around you, to the people around you, he's saying, so that ultimately they may turn to him and they may glorify God on the day of salvation, the day of his visitation. Let your good deeds be on display. So from the beginning of the letter, Peter wants them to rightly understand how to live in a culture that does not love Jesus. And he starts with a compelling analogy. He says, you may be born and raised in Pontus, You may be fifth generation in Galatia, but this is not your home. He's giving words. He's giving a theological concept. He's he's giving them a grid, a paradigm to understand their existence as believers in the world. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are foreigners in your own land, he tells them. Exiles. Exiles. And this is our identity as well. We're foreigners. We're resident aliens. We're exiles. That's how we are to understand our relationship in an unbelieving culture. Here's the reality that many of us don't live with, that following Jesus is such a radical Countercultural way of life that we will always be outsiders in an unbelieving world because unbelievers are actively rejecting the king that we submit our lives to. You will always be an outsider. And if you don't have that sense or that feel, you should be concerned. Jesus said, whoa, which is a term of judgment, judgment upon you when all men speak well of you. Because we are fundamentally different people. And the host nation regularly pushes back against outsiders, foreigners. They don't understand them. They want them to adopt the culture and the practices and the beliefs of the host culture. And that's what your world wants for you. To adopt, believe what we believe. Say what we say. Do what we do. But you're very your very core identity, our core identity as the church is we're, on, we're in exile. We're exiles. This is such an important message for the church in the U.S. to get. There is a clear distinction between God's kingdom and the world, between believing society and the unbelieving society. And the distinctions which have always been there In America are becoming more and more clear in our culture. It's just becoming the reality that we can relate more and more with terms in the Bible that God gives to us to describe our experience. The feeling of being an outsider shouldn't come as a surprise. It should not come as a surprise to us. It's by nature what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's two temptations, I think, in, in the times we live in where the culture is hardening increasingly against God and uh, hardening against the beliefs of the church. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary that we have out there for you, uh, he, he, hand, he describes this well. This is what he says. In these hardening times, some of us will be tempted to compromise what we believe in order to fit in or to avoid suffering, while others of us will be tempted to bemoan all that is wrong with our world and long nostalgically for a better time, long forgotten, and that likely never existed. Peter will equip us to stand firm against both temptations as we look forward to to a better future. Here's how this temptation works in our world. It's two temptations. One is the temptation of the young. The other is the temptation of the old. The temptation of the young, when you are marginalized, is to want to fit in. Young people, the world is seeking to squeeze you into its mold, to believe its beliefs and to question the beliefs that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we're further marginalized, and I don't know how, how, I can't predict the future, but as we are marginalized, here's what happens. The temptation is, I want to uh, be liked. I want to fit in. And we can even deceive ourselves at times by saying, for the sake of the gospel, I want to build bridges. And that's true. We should do that. But sometimes we can compromise the truth of Scripture and deceive ourselves to think we're just being relatable. And so, as the young, certainly the old can be tempted with this as well, but the young must be on guard that we, as that you are in exile, that you will never fully fit in with this world. You weren't meant to. The temptation of the old, especially in our country, is to look back and long for a day. As he writes, nostalgically to long nostalgically for a better time. And I think he's right. The truth is, it may have been cleaner on the outside, but the inside of the cup was still dirty. It was still dirty. Just because people were externally a little bit more moral, um, if they didn't believe in Jesus, they'd just be moral people going to hell. That's all it was. It just felt a little better. But I get that, and, and as we've talked about cultural changes, especially relating to the older folks, or here I'm talking to boomers. My, I'm on the first year. I'm the youngest baby boomer or the oldest Gen Xer, depends on how you draw the lines. But I'm, I'm, I'm a bridge, I'm on the bridge of the two. But I identify with the boomers, for the sake of this illustration, for sure. For the sake of reality, I'm probably Gen Z, you know, so yes. so cool. But just to make everybody feel comfortable, I'll go with the boomers. Uh, But that's our challenge. And as I've addressed this in the past, I don't think I've always done a good job. I think I've challenged, you know, I've been sharp and challenged and really haven't entered into what should be a grieving process for many older folks who've seen the culture change so much. I was recently in a larger group, and we were talking about cultural change, and one of the people in the room who was retirement age said, I feel like in this culture, I'm Rip Van Winkle. I went to sleep and woke up 20 years later, and this is the culture. If you're young, you need to know that's how many older people in in our congregation feel. It's disorienting. But there's good news for us older people in the book of 1 Peter because he's going to show us that the answer is not to long for a day long past but to, with fresh vision, walk out our faith in confidence in a, perhaps what feels like a new reality and is a new reality, but with confidence that God does His best work when His people are on the margins. Doesn't mean we don't stand up and try to bring change politically or culturally. Doesn't. I'm not saying throw in the towel. This book is not about withdrawal, but it's about embracing being an exile seeing the glory of being an island of folks announcing the glory of God to a watching world, providing hope for those who have none. So two temptations, the young to assimilate, the old to look back sentimentally or nostalgically. And some of us maybe need to grieve that, and then we need to move on in faith uh, in God's timing, but we need to move on. Uh, with what God has for us. Okay, number two, he says they are elect. They are exiles, they are elect. They are the elect exiles. Other versions translate this, the chosen. Though you feel like foreigners in your own land, Peter says, you're chosen by God. All oh, that is such good news. The church is God's elect people, that before the foundation of the world, God set his affection on a people, God chose a people, and now in time, God is saving a people as his own. And he spells this out verse in verse 2 even more. You are elect, you are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge doesn't mean simply that God knew something ahead of time. Foreknowledge refers to God's knowing of people, that God ahead of time knew a people, that he planned our redemption is what that's saying. With God's foreknowledge, he planned our redemption. And it's not just God's foreknowledge, it's the Father, the foreknowledge of God the Father. These elect exiles are suffering on the margin. They're experiencing some social rejection, some family rejection, maybe some hindrances at their work, maybe the slander of their character. And from the get-go, Peter wants them to know they have a Father in heaven that planned this out ahead of time. God's not surprised that you're an exile. God's not wringing his hands That people are resisting you at points. God has a plan. God is in control. God is gloriously in control. This is his very plan to reach the world, is to reach it not from power but from weakness. The whole New Testament is this. Paul says he glories in his weakness, Because when I am weak, then I am strong in the power of God. And that applies here, too. You're chosen by God for this time and for this place. Sons and daughters elected, loved, chosen out by God the Father. And this is because of the work of the Spirit. Look what he says. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification has to do with holiness. Sometimes it means growing progressively holy. Sometimes it means being set apart. Probably both are true here. So you are set apart. God set his affections on you, chose you before time began. Other passages of the scripture say before time began. He chose you and he set you apart by his spirit. Why did he do that? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So you feel in exile, you feel foreign, you feel out of place, you feel disoriented in your world. Well, God shows you, you have a father that loves you. And he has set you apart by his spirit and he's called you to obedience. He's called you to follow him, to walk with him, to honor him, and for the sprinkling of blood, which is an, a, a picture, an Old Testament picture of forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness. So he's called you to follow him, and, and when you fail, there's forgiveness, the sprinkling of his blood. So he, he just starts out with this blast of encouragement. I mean, the only daunting word in the whole first two verses is this word exile that I spend so much time on because the whole book is going to be about that sojourners and exiles. So you're in this position so that you can obey the Lord and follow him. There's going to be the Spirit has called you to that, the Spirit will equip you for that. Called to obey. Well, this dual identity is a running theme throughout the book. You are elect exiles. You are the chosen outsiders. Chosen by the Father, resisted by the world. Think, that's what this verse says. You are chosen by the Father, resisted by the world, just like Jesus. That's Jesus. Chosen by the Father, resisted By the world. And Jesus said, The servant is not greater than the master. Identifying with Jesus means forgiveness, the Spirit, a life on mission with purpose, the eternal hope of the new heavens and the new earth, and entering into his sufferings. The prosperity gospel takes the icing and just wants to have cake, three meals a day, all day long, and you get malnourished that way and you die. But the true picture of Jesus is all the blessings, many, most, reserved for eternity, but it also comes with entering into his sufferings. Here's a verse we don't teach much. John 15, 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you, there it is, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He, is, he was hated but loved. So Jesus was hated by the world but loved by the Father. And you see, he says, you're in the same place. They hated me, they're going to hate you. doesn't mean we're to be jerks. We're trying to bring on hatred. Now, we're going to see in this book, we're to be a winsome witness. But the world will resist. Much of the world will resist. We are the chosen outsiders. As one person said, we are the selected rejected. Selected by God, rejected by the world. And we need to embrace that. Young people, you need to know that Christianity will never be culturally cool. It's just not going to be cool in a pluralistic society, and I'm grateful for a pluralistic society, but in a pluralistic society, it will just never be cool to say, Jesus is the only way. The rest of you are wrong. That's never going to be cool. It simply will not be popular to say, if you don't surrender to Jesus, you will be condemned for eternity. Never will that be celebrated in the culture. You can't teach the Bible's plan, God's ordained design for gender. You can't teach the sexual ethics of the Bible and have our culture do a happy dance. It's not going to happen. We serve a different king, we live in a different kingdom, and therefore we are exiles in this culture. And we need to understand that. You can't wade into the political arena, you can't wade in to the educational arena or any other arena, for that matter, and say, "The word of God is authoritative and inerrant, and we need to live according to what it teaches." Never will that be welcomed or celebrated. And here's the ironic thing. Most Christians, most evangelical Christians in America, we are outraged when we get pushed back. We're shocked. Who do they, I can't believe this. We're outraged. And, And we live with a victim mentality that's leading nobody to Jesus. It's a victim mentality that just lives with this overwhelming angst and burden that everybody's against us. I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying they are. The media, they're against us. The entertainment industry in Hollywood, they're against us. Most politicians are against us, we say. The liberals are against us. I want you to think about the history of our religion, Christianity, the world murdered our founder. What do you think you signed up for, a day at the spa? (laughs) What are we thinking? What are we thinking? This is why Jesus said, take up a cross. Listen, if you want to be just like the surrounding culture and all of your beliefs, all your values, all your customs, all your conduct, then Jesus is not for you. But if your eyes have been opened to the wonder and the glory of Christ and your heart is moved by his sacrificial love and his spirit lives in you and his forgiving grace is compelling you, then this book will have so much to say for you. So much to say. Because God shows us how we can make a difference. The book doesn't say withdraw from the world. It doesn't say you're in exile, so hunker down and hide out. It doesn't say that at all. We are to live in the world. But we don't war against the people of the world. Rather, we stand ready. To present Jesus to them. In chapter 3, Peter is going to say, Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be ready to give an answer for Jesus. But do it with gentleness. And do it with respecting the other person as an image bearer of God. Listen, if all we're doing is whining about how bad we have it, no one is ever going to tap us on the shoulder and say, please, pray tell, tell me about the wonderful hope that you have. (laughs) They're simply going to say, what can I do not to be as angry as you are? This letter teaches us not to be surprised by suffering, but when it comes to look to God, to trust him, and to live a life of good works. Let's read real quickly uh, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 4. This is what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted, this is the kind of trials they're experiencing so are some of us. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then a few verses down, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the response. We are to entrust ourselves to God while doing good there's a book written a few years ago about First Peter from Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, and they have this wonderful quote that informed my, uh, the title of the series. This is what they say. We can not only survive on the margins, we can thrive on the margins. From the margins, we point to God's coming world. We offer an alternative lifestyle, values, relationships, a community that proves incredibly attractive, First Peter equips us to go back into the world, into our classrooms, boardrooms, factories and playgrounds as men and women who like our savior before us are those who are marginal and yet world-changing. I'm out of time and I got one more thing to say. I just got to say it. Thank you. I don't know who said that, but praise God for you. May, may your tribe increase. Let me tell you, here's where we can learn how to change the world from the margins. Perhaps the best example around us, I think, of, ch- of bringing change on the margins is black Christians. I say, as, a, as a white person, I say, I look and say, it's the black church. I'm going to read you a quote from a commentator. Um, named Dennis Edwards, and he tells this example that I thought was so helpful. He says, Despite the alienation that we, African Americans, have long experienced, the world has been profoundly impacted by our tenacious faith. There are innumerable heroes from the margins who will forever be nameless, but one person whose name is well-known is Rosa Parks. Most Americans are familiar with her as the woman from Alabama who refused to give up her seat and moved to the rear of a public bus, sparking the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted 381 days and helped to propel Dr. Martin Luther King to national notoriety. Rosa Parks is a classic example of a Christian believer on the margins. She was a lifelong member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and her faith in Jesus was always an integral part of her life. Biographer Douglas Brinkley writes concerning Ms. Park's devotion that the teachings of Jesus Christ had convinced her, as they had MLK, that a heart filled with love could conquer anything, even bigotry. Quote, I remember finding such comfort and peace while reading the Bible, Park said. Its teaching became a way of life and helped me in dealing with my day-to-day problems. Ms. Park's legacy has been profound, but not because she was especially charismatic or held a place of prominence in the country. On the contrary, she was not widely known and respected until well after her simple act of defiance she serves as an example of someone from the margins of society who faced discrimination and alienation much the way peter's readers did but whose faith allowed her to make a lasting impact on those who observed her the book of first peter it's not saying throw in the towel and give up, you're on the margins. It's saying, by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, may God so transform the people of God that from the margins, our compelling example provides a clarity to a world that is so confused and only growing more confused so that you are there to provide an answer for the hope that is within you. I'm not praying for persecution. I don't enjoy resistance for my faith. Matter of fact, in the pastoral prayer day, I prayed for religious liberty. I think we should. But if God doesn't answer that prayer the way I prayed it, and we face increasing marginalization, may the grace of God strengthen us to shout from Jesus is Lord, and show the love of God to the dying Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.